So I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for a time to gather. We thank you for a time to praise your name uh, with song, uh, to worship before you, Lord. We're thankful that, that we can open your word, that we can call upon you, Lord, that you would take your spirit and teach us, move within us. Lord, I know it won't be by my power or my strength or even my words, but it'll be by the work of your spirit if anything is done here today in the stirring of the hearts of these people. I thank you for those that are working with our kids and all the different ministries here this morning. May all that we do be for your glory. And may you be pleased with us here this morning. May you guide us into truth and be with us here as we open your word now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, Kevin is gone. Uh, he's out of town doing a, a, a wedding in California. So I'm filling in for him uh, this week. So but I actually want to go back to last week. Uh, I mentioned some, some Old Testament history. And as Gary said, Gary took us to all the way back to 1 Samuel and the time of Samuel and the, the, the rock of help or, you know, the, this, this hope and, and this great Ebenezer stone. Well, we're also going to go to the Old Testament today. I brought this up last week. I took us back to the time period of the restoration community in Israel. This is a, a period of time, if you remember, Israel in the north fell to the Assyrians. They were carried away many years previous. And then Judah, some years later, uh, they fell to the Chaldeans. And Babylon came in and Nebuchadnezzar, remember, crushed uh, Jerusalem. They burned the temple. And I could just see Solomon's temple and all of its glory going up in flames and being destroyed. Uh, and that was that the background there. And then, of course, though, we fast forward. God prophesied that a Gentile king, Cyrus by name, would one day be moved to bring God's people back. And so it was that he issued a decree making it uh, possible, not only possible, but he actually funded and was fully behind this effort to, to have them return back to Jerusalem. Um, and so it was that in that time period of 538, when the decree went out, and then by 536, they arrived, the first wave arrives back to Israel, uh, and they're, they're gung-ho, they're excited probably to get back. They've had to travel for months to get back there, and they get back, they start rebuilding the altar, uh, then they turn and start working on the foundation of the temple, and they start wrapping that up, and then no sooner as they get going on that, they face opposition. They're in this Persian empire, this world, this Gentiles that have been backfilled into Israel after they had been deported many years before. So they're faced with all these people around them with different gods and different beliefs. And they're saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't rebuild this temple. You can't say that. You can't do those things. And so they faced massive opposition. And suddenly the, the once, you know, hopeful and excited, excited people their, their fervor was sort of lost and it faded. And what ensued after that was 16 years of, in a sense, sort of living like the world around them. Building up nice homes that we'll read about in a second with paneled homes. But they also, though, faced some other problems. Some economic and agricultural problems. Problems of inflation. Problems that things just weren't going well for the group around them. Uh, not too much different than what we can see when we look out our door. And, and you'd say, well, what was the issue here? What's the problem? What, could we, what can we do about this situation? Uh, well, one fall, 
in, the, in the year 520 BC, the Lord stepped in. And I want to zoom in on this because, you know, most of the time when you study the Bible, you'll read books of the Bible that might span hundreds of years, perhaps even going thousands. And you're like, wow, this is a huge, big picture history of all these kings or all these things going on in the judges. And it goes on for years and years, hundreds of years. Well, we're going to zoom in today to a period of four months in the fall or the autumn of 520 BC. From about August to December, a messenger came. And actually another one came alongside him as well. There were two that came. And it, they came with a word that radically changed the course for that small remnant restoration community. And I believe the message they have is massively important for us right here today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Haggai. It's the third from the last uh, book in the Old Testament. And we are actually going to attempt to make it through an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. And that, <laughs> now, just in case you're getting worried, just remember, this is the second shortest book in all of the Old Testament, so hopefully that'll, that'll allow us to make it through. We'll need the Lord's help, but I want to make it through. So here we go. We're going to dive into Haggai 1.1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to rebuild it. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So Haggai's first message was directed here to the leader of this Jewish remnant here in Judah, Zerubbabel. He was a man who was born in Babylon during the captivity. His name means seed of Babylon. He was a direct descendant of the kingly line of David following under Jehoiachin or Jeconiah. He's a descendant, great grandson of that king. So he's in the line of David. He is in the kings. And God starts his message speaking to him, but essentially to the, all the people. And he starts by quoting the people. He quotes what the people say. He says, this people says something. And here's what they're saying. The time has not come. Even the time for the house of the Lord to rebuild. The question becomes, why? Why is it not the right time for this people to take up the work of the Lord? I think that's a good question to ask. We're not really told exactly. Perhaps it could be that they don't want to deal with the pressure of all the opposition from the world around them. 
Perhaps they feel awkward in this Gentile world. They'll be looked upon as some religious fanatics over here doing this thing. They'll feel awkward. It could be they would just rather stay home in their nice paneled homes. Could be that the economic stress and the agricultural struggles have made them start thinking, you know, it just isn't a good time to embark on a building project given all these troubles we're having. Now notice, they didn't say they would never do the rebuild project. It's just not time today. So God then asks in verse 4, he says, well, what time is it good for? What time is it good for then? Is it good now to, to live in your nice houses while mine sits desolate? Is that what it's time to do? The principal issue in this is still a question in my mind for people even today. What are your thoughts about the best timing for working in God's kingdom? You know, when you live for 16 years as they had done, over the last, you know, 536 to 520, and you settle into life, there can be sort of a tendency to forget some of the things that really, at one point in your life, they really mattered to you. And this is a problem we've all faced from time to time. Putting off today what God's putting before us and requiring, procrastinating, looking to something else, and, and ignoring what he's laid right before us. Perhaps becoming like them and even saying that, well, we know the times. We'll have time to work on that later. Today's not the day for that. So I'm going to put off today what could be done tomorrow. And that's what these, the people had become. Now, I just could tell you a story here. I grew up, you know, I'm, I'm 47. I turned 47 last Sunday. And this marks the first year in my 47-year life, so I've, for the past 46 years, I've always gone to a small property and some land and some lakes down in East Texas. I've told you about this property before. My grandmother grew up there nearly 100 years ago, back in the, that turn of that century, on the, and lived through the Great Depression on a cotton farm. And, and her father, my great-grandfather, plowed a lake with mules and oxen and whatnot, and they made this lake, and they even used it for baptizing folks from time to time, and, and it was this really neat property, and they, you know, had this, and the Lord provided for them on it, and of course, when I came along and I was born, my parents, who are here today, they would take me down as a little as a baby, I, they'd take me down, and we'd go there, and, we'd, and I could tell you stories. If I could take you there now, you know, I could, I could show you spots, and I could take you to, you know, mom's favorite lake, and the lake across the road, and the dead lake, and I could take you to these places that I had these great memories. I could take you, and I could stand you right here's where I was, and I caught a, my first big bass, and my brother was here, and my dad was here. I could take you to the spot where Alex caught that huge bass right in the middle. Yeah, when he was just a little kid, he had this huge bass on. And I could walk here through these, this area, and I could show you where I remembered my great uncle coming down with his tractor and, and, or his truck and having a trailer full of watermelons and all these memories and all these things through the years. And we've taken our kids there, as you can see. And I even put my wife up here with a fish in her hand, which she, she'll have to like that one because I always have to twist her arm to get out and do some fishing with us. But nonetheless, this was a place of great memory. And you know, as I was preparing this week, Alex and I were on the way to soccer practice, 
And I said, yeah, Alex, we need to pray that the Lord sort of gives me some direction as to what exactly he wants me to teach on. So we prayed about it. Alex prayed, Lord, help dad know what to, to speak on. And I prayed about it. And we got to soccer practice and he went on up to practice. And it wasn't 15 minutes later that I got a call from my brother. And he said, he, at first he said, well, how was your birthday, you know, last Sunday? And, and I said, pretty good. And then he, he very rapidly transitioned to a different subject. He goes, well, I have something really sad to tell you. That that lake and all the land that's been in our family, our extended family, for five generations, they put it up for sale. They've, they've already signed a contract. And next week it's going to close. It's gone. It's going to be gone. And, and I remember sitting there and you're like, what? This is, this is a place that, I mean, it's, you just always assume that it's just always been there. And here I was in 2021 thinking, oh, it was the first year ever that I didn't go there. Thinking, oh, we'll go in 2022. Spring break, this next spring, we'll go, we'll go down to Texas. We'll have another year. We've had all these other 46 years. I'll get one more Probably two more, ten more. You know, that's the that's the way you think until you get that call. It no, it's that I'm that's gone now. Now I don't know exactly what'll happen down there, but I'm telling you that it it sort of has a way of rattling you. You know, you just have to think back and this thing. And I think in this case, God was calling them and us to examine our priorities. How often do we say, "I don't feel that the time is right"? How often do we prioritize our own interests over God's kingdom work? We think, oh, we'll have more time later to do the work for the Lord. We'll have more time later to work, you know, and aid in his kingdom. Perhaps maybe bringing it more down to earth directly. And you, you can say, oh, I have more time later to work on my marriage. More time later to, to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'll have more time later to spend time with my kids and teach them about the ways of the great I am. The problem is you may not have that, that, that type of time. And not only that, you might be missing the time that God's placed right before us. And I've seen this even in my own life. There was a time when I, with the kids, I was always excited to do Bible stories and I'd dress up and do all these things. And little by little, like the 16 years for those Israelites, you sort of lose the fervor a little. And you got to try to somehow do something about it. These people, their priorities had shifted. What once was, let's build the altar, let's build the temple. And they were happy about it. Now they're, they're just like everyone else around them. And many times we approach the things of the church with utmost frugality. And then we turn around and live our lives in excess. Similar to what this restoration community was doing. You'd say, well, why? What, what happened here? What's going on? I believe this is an issue of uh, their hearts and our hearts. What do we value? What matters most to you? I believe what matters most to you, you'll see it in what you spend your time on, your money on, your talents in. You'll see it. It will show where your heart's priority is. Thus, the Lord then calls them. He says, consider your ways. Two times in verse 6 and in verse 7. Consider your ways. He's saying, give careful thought to the course of of your life, to the manner of things you're doing, and what you're setting your mind on. Have you ever taken time to step back, sit down with your spouse or a family member, and reflect on what you're spending your time and your money and your efforts on? What is your focus in life? Is it the Lord's kingdom, or is it your own pursuits? 
And as they considered the, their ways, God says also, consider the results that you see before you. You have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes like incredible uh, inflation problems. Their, their money just isn't, have, doesn't have any power anymore. And they go to the fuel tank and they have to spend 50 to $60 just to put gas in the car. And their money just vaporizes. And, it, and this touched every aspect of their lives. The harvest, the food, the drink, the clothing, and the bank account. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. As I thought of this image of a purse with holes, it just reminded me. And I've told you that I, I have this old 1972 Datsun. Well, I bought the thing 12, 13 years ago, something like this. And I remember we went and met the guy in Muskogee, Oklahoma. And he drove up. I got the car. And it needed some gas. Fuel gauge is low. So we drive over to the gas station. I get out. Chris is over here with the other car with the kids. I get the gas out, put it in there, start running it, and I start smelling serious fuel. And I'm like, this is, something's wrong here. And then I back up, and I see fuel just, just pouring out underneath the car. It's like, this thing had holes all over. You know, it, 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 it just, you'd put gas in and just come out underneath the car. Of course, I had to try to drive the thing home. And by the way, I found that that thing, not only did it have holes there, it had holes all over it. I mean, I got home, I remember lifting up the carpet and then looking at the floorboards, and this thing was like the Flintstone mobile. I mean, there were holes all over it. I mean, your feet could almost just go through and run on the ground. I mean, it was unreal how many holes were in this thing. But and in today's day and age, with a hole like that in your fuel tank, that's a serious problem when you're paying 3 to $4 a, a gallon. But anyway, this group was struggling. And, you know, we could, we could also ask these questions. Are there areas of our life where there's little fruit? Do we perhaps need to discuss this with our God? Do we need to ask, why are we not seeing the fruit here? And I think that's the point of what he's trying to get out. Why have the results not been ideal? And, and, and instead, they've been fleeting. And you're not reaching satisfaction. And you're not get, gaining any blessing. And, and then question number two, what can be done about it? Well, God gives them the answers to that. As he goes on in verse 8, he says, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild this temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, and on the grain, and on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, and on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. He starts up there in verse 8 with a an answer as to what they can go do. Well, you get your act, you start going. You go out and you gather the wood and start rebuilding. And then if you want to know why you're not seeing good yield and fruit in your life, I got an answer for you. Think about it this way. This whole perspective he gives is incredibly contrary to what the world around us even today would say. If someone came today and said, asked you the question, what's the basis for good gross national product? You probably would say, well, good infrastructure, a strong industrial base, 
good solid management, a well-trained workforce, skilled research and development, and prowess and understanding of the global supply chain and how to manage that. But I don't know if you caught it here, this passage gives you a quite different view of what the basis of gross national product is. How we handle our God and our creator, what we do with his statutes, what we do with his son and his provision for our righteousness. This, my friends, has the utmost impact upon our lives and upon the culture around us and whether we will find his blessing or find his hand of opposition. The world around us, man says, I control, man controls the destiny, uh, my own destiny. Man controls the weather. Man can deal with and counteract inflation. But if you let this passage speak clearly, you find that God is the one who is over the productivity of this earth. God is the one who is over the weather. And God is over the yield of your, your very hands when you go to work. Is this just something for 520 B.C., the autumn of 520 B.C.? I don't think so. I think this can be applied right here today. God says what you work, you eat, you drink. It didn't end up in blessing for those folks. Why? Because you've ignored me. You've deprioritized my call on your lives. Thus, you have faced my hand of opposition. Our devotion to God or our lack thereof, directly impacts our relationship with God and thus the fruits therein. And I would say to a larger extent, it impacts our culture and our country around us. And as a case in point, I'll put before you someone like a Joseph. Did Joseph impact the community and the nation around him as a result of his prioritizing, his devotion to his God? How did it impact the nation of Egypt? It was huge. It was the only reason they were even able to survive this drought. He, and all through it, people were like, there's something about that Joseph. He, wasn't, he didn't hide the fact that he followed the God Yahweh, the God of his ancestors. And that's where his devotion was. And thus it impacted for incredible Potiphar's house, Pharaoh, and all the nation. And that was one of the, that was the largest empire of the day. And then you look at someone like a Paul, that his devotion and prioritizing his devotion to the Lord impact those around him and his community. Yes, it did. What about a Daniel? Again, in a Gentile land, did it impact those around him? You bet it did. And note here too, that this prophecy never confronts idolatry. You know, that's a sin Israel struggled with over and over and over. But, it does, but what it does confront here is complacency, procrastination, and incorrect prioritization. You might say, well, that seems like somewhat harmless compared to the, the devastating aspects of idolatry. And, and idolatry is bad, but do you see what it's wreaking on, the, on these, these, this remnant here as they're procrastinating and being, becoming more complacent. And so it's becoming deadly to them, these, these issues. 
And it goes on in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So here we read about the results of Haggai's first message. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant. They obeyed. They get up. They take action. And the Lord sent a message of confirmation, of encouragement, saying, I am with you. When the great I am stands up and says, I am with you, only imagine the encouragement to say, he is with us. And notice that, that God's involvement is more than just a word of encouragement. It goes much deeper than that here. It was a stirring of spirit. Verse 14 says the Lord's spirit in, stirred the spirit of one, Zerubbabel, two, Joshua the high priest, and three, the spirit of the remnant people. And thus it says they came and they worked as the Lord stirred with his spirit, the, the spirits of his people. You want a church that is vibrant with active followers? You need God's spirit to stir. I can stand up here and I can sit here and talk and I can yell and sometimes you see spit flying from me here and there. But it will be of little value, little value if the spirit does not do a great work. And I want you to take note of something. Haggai's opening message was only 11 verses and 10 sentences. Do you know how many sentences I've spoken to you here today? I, don't, I didn't count them, but I'm here to tell you it's a lot more than 10. And yet Haggai's message, coupled with the power of God Almighty and his spirit, equaled results with a capital R. And I believe the Spirit's work resulted in action. It resulted in service. It resulted in reverence to the Lord. And it resulted in obedience, heartfelt obedience. And so it was that it took 10 sentences and the Spirit of Almighty God to yield in the results in the hearts of this people. Hearts that had previously been dormant for 16 years. It took 10 sentences. And hence God's message only a few months later by another guy to the same people. He says, not by might, nor by, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord through Zechariah to the same group of people. And the story goes on in chapter 2. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. So now we're about a month later from that last message. Speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, 
Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Now, to understand this little call by the Lord, we actually need to rewind 16 years earlier. Remember I told you 16 years earlier, they got started. They were on fire. They were ready to go. And we find out what, what that looked like back then in 536. We read Ezra telling us back in his book about what happened. It says, when they laid that foundation, it was a great day. And in 311 of Ezra, it says, they sang, the people sang. They, they, they were praising and they were giving thanks to the Lord and they were shouting to Yahweh. But yet in verse 12 of Ezra 3, yet many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice. So we have those that are looking forward, they're excited and they're shouting. And then we have some of the older folks looking back at what they remember and they're weeping. And it's simultaneously happening, so much so that in verse 13 of Ezra 3, it says, The people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. That was how it all got started. And then you fast forward through the 16 years of what we've been looking at of their just troubles and turmoils. And now Haggai here comes with a word from the Lord and God says, you got to go get those folks and bring them here that saw the temple in its former glory and ask them a simple question. How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? These are questions of perspective. How do you view this? Do you view this as just a small insignificant thing? And he's saying, you probably do. He's drawing out their perspective and highlighting it. Namely, that the new construction seems like nothing compared to the old one. Why is he doing this? Well, I believe sometimes our perspectives get in the way of our progress. We can look at things with a perspective that paints it in a negative light. We can end up discouraged. They're looking only at the small. It's a baby step thing. This isn't, we're never going to get to the end of this. I just remember what it was like in the past. And it makes it feels like, feel like we're not making any progress. I know another guy in the Old Testament that said the same thing. No one's listening to my report. And I'm going to give up and I'm going to run down, down into the Sinai Peninsula. That was Elijah. And you remember he was, he was depressed. He, was, he had given up and God says, you're wrong. You don't have the right perspective. I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So our perspectives, this negative perspective can be debilitating for us as believers. And I think it was for them in that day. And so the Lord's going to deal with it. He's going to say, bring it right here. Let's talk about this perspective. And God wanted them and he wants us to have the correct perspective. So he gives them the correct perspective. And this is where he expands their view. Haggai 2.4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came up out of Egypt... My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Take courage, Zerubbabel. In other words, don't be discouraged by the negative perspective concerning you, this work that I have called for you to do. For I am with you, and my spirit is abiding in your midst. This is a reminiscent statement back to Egypt, and he even brings it into view, God does. Just like he said in Exodus 29, 45, I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. And so it is yet again, as he's bringing them out of bondage under the Persian Empire, leading them back into the land, just like he brought them out of Egypt back then. He says, I'm with you just like I promised I would be, and my spirit is with you. Have you ever given up on something because you thought the Lord isn't in it? The Lord isn't in this. In some cases, that might be right. Perhaps the Lord isn't in it. But there are other cases where it may be our own doubt and our lack of faith or not willingness to really trust in God, looking more at the negatives. Well, God's saying, don't fear the opposition. Don't fear the government. Don't fear that I won't be with you when I'm telling you that I am with you. And thus the Lord gives him the right perspective. And here's the right perspective. Number one, as I've said, I am with you. My spirit is abiding in you. Two, I will shake the earth again. And number three, I will bring wealth and glory to this house, which will one day have glory that overshadows the former one that you guys just keep thinking about and can't get beyond. These people needed to know that their small perspective was clouding, clouding and hindering their progress, and it needed correcting. The accurate view is this, that this remnant group, although probably small in number compared to Solomon's massive army of skilled workforce that built the first temple, guess what? This small remnant will get the job done, and the latter glory of the house will be greater than the former. And, you know, Zechariah came and spoke about this sort of thing with the small increment baby steps. And he said in Zechariah 4.10, speaking for the Lord, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven, speaking of the eyes of the Lord, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Meaning you despise the day of small things. God says, I don't. I'm, gonna, I'm happy when I see the plumb line in Zerubbabel saying, because I know that he's acting in obedience and faith, and it will yield in the end. You know, our family may have lost that lake in East Texas. I don't know if I'll ever be able to go there. I may never be able to go back to that lake. I, I don't know what the future is. Uh, but as I thought about it this week, and as I read these stories, you know, God had a way of coming alongside give you a little different perspective. And here's the perspective. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those 
who love him. Perhaps there will be one day a lake. He says, Joel, what do you think? You got it? Joel's lake. Have it. I don't know. But I look forward to the fact that I have a perspective that says what's beyond here will make the former that you love, that you thought was the greatest thing ever. I got to wipe that away. And I got to have you look to something much better that hasn't even entered your heart. And in closing out his message, Haggai, God gave his people two concluding messages. These last two messages were only a matter of hours apart on the same day of the month. And this was it for Haggai. These were his last words before Haggai disappears from the pages of God's awesome book. In 2.10, on the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. So now we're about two months after that last message. And he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest for a ruling. Bring the priest in. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooked food or wine or oil or any other food, Will it become holy? The priest quickly answered, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these things, will the latter become unclean? The priest quickly answered, yeah, it will be unclean. Then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now, we'll pick back up in a second. This message goes on, but I want to pause just a second. At first glance, you get to this one. You're like, Haggai, I've understood. I've followed. A lot of it makes great sense. But you get to this one and say, this seems a little confusing. What are you trying to say here? The reality is, I believe this third major point in his message may be by you know, perhaps one of the most important in his whole book. This message deals with the spiritual perspective of holiness and righteous standing before God. And God calls in the priests. Remember, who are the priests? Priests are those that go before God on behalf of man. They're those that knew the law, that were the teachers of the law. He said, let's bring them in. I've got some questions for them. We need to talk. How is holiness transferred? Can you get it by merely touching a clean or sanctified thing? No, you cannot, the priests say. Exactly. Now, second question. How is impurity and uncleanness transferred? Easily, says the priest. Just like it was stated, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Exactly the right answer. It doesn't take much to create impurity. And the Lord says, so it is with this people, unclean. So is this nation, unclean. So is every work of their hands. So is their offering. It's unclean. That's the picture he just painted. Then you ask the question, why? Why is he asking this? Why is he bringing this into view here? Well, let me ask you a question and maybe see it, get you thinking at least along the lines why I believe he brings this up. Question, will rebuilding the temple Give them a righteous and clean standing before God? Will that give them righteous, clean standing before God to go build the temple? I would contend no. 
It won't. I mean, it's good that they're doing it. And it's clear God's stirring to move them in this direction. But the equation has been and always will be an issue of the heart. They can honor him with their lips. They can honor him by building him this structure. But will they rend and lay their hearts before him fully? Never forget the heart. So the Lord reminds them of something to consider. He goes on. But this is what you should consider. But now do consider from this day onward. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time. Now looking back. He's looking back now. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures. There would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures. There would be only 20. I smote you. And every work of your hands with blasting wind and mildew and hail. Why? I'm trying to get your attention. But yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. So do consider this from this day onward. From the 24th day of the ninth month. From the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Consider this. Is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. It has not borne fruit. And yet, from this day onward, I will bless you. He here calls them to think back over the past 16 years, their past tense view here. Remember when that one stone, and you started out, one stone placed on the other, and you'd come and you'd look for grain and wine, and you'd work with your hands. But I smote it during these past 16 years. Why? I was calling you. Calling you to come back to me in verse 17. But what happened? God says, you did not come back to me. So consider this now. As I demark this day. This very critical day. That we could talk about in, in another time. About the significance of this 24th day of the ninth month. I think there's some massive significance here. But when God demarks a day, it's good for us to remember it. He's demarking it here. And he says, know this from this day when the temple was founded. Consider that while you have seed and vines and fig trees and pomegranates that are in your barns. Have they yielded anything? No, they haven't borne any fruit. But now... I am going to bless you. Was it because they built his house? And they just got out and got the act. Is it the house? They're going to step away in years to come. Oh, the house. We, we did the work. And we, that earns us standing before the Lord. Or is it that they truly came back to God with all their hearts? And this is what motivated them to then build the house. Because only three weeks earlier, three to four weeks earlier to this exact passage. Another guy stood in the same type of place and he said this, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me. That was spoken three or four weeks earlier to the same people. So God called, I thought, I think through Zechariah and through Haggai. 
and he called through his hand of opposition over the last 16 years. And then just three weeks earlier, he called again, return to me. And I believe they did. They did. This time they responded and they returned in their heart of hearts. And thus God is saying through Haggai, I'm returning to you now. And this is the day you can mark it down and remember when I used to be against you. And now from here on out, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. And I'm returning to you because you've returned to me in your hearts. It's the same as today. You can go to church. You can use Jesus' name. You can give money to a building project. And, you, and you, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Look at this great church we built. But don't miss the key to right standing and holiness before God. God requires us to give our whole lives, our hearts, believing him fully, trusting in him in everything, loving him with every fiber of our beings. He desires our lives to be wholeheartedly committed to him, not partially, not just 51%, but wholly. You can't just look back, oh, I built, the, you know, I built that church, I built that till I gave, I tied, I did my work, now I'm just going to go home. That isn't the type of follower the Lord's seeking. He wants someone that really returns and wants to follow the Lord. Our country is filled with churches. Our city here, right here, has a church almost on every corner, it seems. Yet I would ask the question, where are the hearts of the people of the United States of America. Probably not too different than what it was like in that 16-year period. Sort of far from the Lord. His hand's pretty heavy on them, but they just, they're not, they're not picking them, getting the message. You know, my, my granddad started a grocery store in Eaton, Colorado after World War II with his brother. And the store went real well. And, and my grandfather and his brother, they were really hard workers. They would work. And they started this thing sort of from the ground up. And it, and it did really well, like I said, it grew. And by the time I, I came on the scene, they had several grocery stores over in Fort Collins and still some in Eaton. And when we would go out there and take trips, I'd really go up in the, oh, this little office. And he had this cool little room. And I was, you know, really neat. I don't think they build them like this nowadays. But it would look out over the grocery store. My brother and I, Pat, we'd get up there and like, this is incredible. You, know, you just look out over the whole store and see people moving around. And, and, but guess what? My grandfather was never in that office. And where you would find him is he would be down checking out groceries. He would be down helping stock and fill the shelves. He would be down alongside the meat, the guy working in the meat department. And what I noticed was that those people that worked for Steele's Market and they worked around my grandfather, they loved him. They loved their employer. They, they gave everything. They, they would, you would see them and they would work hard. Not just because they wanted to get a paycheck. Not just, oh, I just put in my time for, for Steele's. I'm heading home. It's like they worked because they loved the guys that owned it. They loved the family. And they would work hard and they, they, they were genuine. And he would be there with them. Half the thing is he would be right alongside them. And they would work hard. And I believe that's the kind of servant the Lord wants in his kingdom. Say, I want to I work for you. I want to give it everything I've got. Because I love you with everything I have. 
not, not just trying to clock in and clock out. I helped build the church. I gave my money and I'm going home. That isn't the picture. And that's why Haggai gives these warnings and these closing messages. And this closing one as he ends is an awesome one. I think he may have gone home, gotten a drink of water, and he came back for his last few sentences ever recorded in the book of, of God's incredible Bible. In Haggai 2.20, he says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai, again on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus concludes the book of Haggai. But in Haggai's day, you see this picture. There they were in this Gentile powerhouse, dominated from all sides. The kings that were coming on the scene, some of them were very wicked at times. Some of them with great opposition to them as people. Some of those kings and Gentile leaders wanted to have nothing to do to help support the Israelites. And their nation, as they looked out, it seemed our nation is lost. We're scattered to the four winds. And what will happen as we go forth? There's no king in Israel. There's no leader for us, for our nation, they're thinking. And I would ask questions for us today. When you look out at the kingdoms and the nations of the earth, perhaps you're saddened by what you see. As a people of God, you may begin to feel more and more as the minority in the midst of this world around you. Perhaps you're getting angered by the suppression of truth that you see in this culture and in our government. Perhaps you begin to fear, where will this next generation, where are they heading? And you long for righteousness, and you long for truth, and you long for a good, righteous leader on the throne. The governments of this earth and the nations have not solved man's problems. And thus fear sets in, as I think it was for those Israelites back in this restoration community. And right here today, I believe the United States is heading down some very dark paths. But the great I am steps in through Haggai. And he speaks to them and he speaks to us and he says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones. I will deal with the nations. And I will select my leader, a descendant of David. Yeshua, and I will be the only one, as Zechariah says. We don't have to get so riled up and fretting about the nations and the governments and fearing this nation and that nation and what's going to happen next because the I am has it. He has it in the end. And he's marked it all down and he knows what every nation, every king, and every leader has done and he will deal with it at the end of the age. When Jesus returns and sits on his glorious throne. And so in closing, I leave you with the four incredible points from Haggai's message. Number one, don't put off today what the Lord is calling you to do. 
prioritize the Lord's call. Number two, don't look with incorrect perspectives, seeing only the small, seemingly insignificant works. We're never going to get out of this. It's just, we're never going to get through this. Don't look at that. Look at the big view, the, God, the perspective, the larger work of the kingdom of God. Number three, remember, never forget that God desires all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. As our master told when asked, he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. This, my friend, is the greatest commandment. And number four, know for certain, God will deal with the world around us. Don't worry about the nations. He's on it anyway. He sits over them. They are a drop in the bucket. And in the end, he will overthrow. And he will install his leader once and for all. That is the message of Haggai. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to gather, to read your word. And Lord, as we rewind and look back on that day, we see a people that sounds sort of like us at times, struggling to make it in a dark world, a lot of opposition from those around us that don't believe in you. We see times where we can live it up in our own excesses, in our own nice homes, while we might be ignoring your call at times. Help us to be people that prioritize your work and your, life, your love for us and turn to you and let us return and give you everything we have. May we realize, Lord, that you want us to have the right perspective. We, you want us to have your perspective. That even if it seems incremental, it's, in the end, it's a massive step. You'll keep moving and moving through your word and your spirit. And in the end, you will finish the work that you have started in us. And help us not to fear these things around us, the world and the nations and the leaders and the, the evil leaders we see and, and politics rambling and all this back and forth. Help us to look to you and say, oh man, I can, I can fall back into the hands of the great I am because he has it. He'll have it in the end. And you, your eye searches to and fro this earth and you know every thought and deed of every heart and every person. Lord, we just pray today that we will turn to you and we will heed these things. And most importantly, may, Lord, you use your spirit to stir within our hearts. Lord, my words have little power compared to your powerful spirit. For not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. We ask these things now in Jesus' great name. Amen.